Hello and welcome to the Bath Institute for Rheumatic Diseases Information Podcasts. I'm Mel Brook, the Patient and Public Engagement Programme Director for BIRD. In this podcast, my guest is Dr Sarah Tansley, who is not only a consultant rheumatologist at the Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases at the RUH in Bath, but also a senior clinical lecturer at Bath University. One of Sarah's special areas of interest is myositis, and she has helped us with our series on myositis back in 2020. We still recommend you have a listen to that series if you're looking to generally learn about this condition. This special short series of two podcasts is an add-on to those podcasts to enable us to tell you about the new British Society for Rheumatology guidelines for the treatment of and management recommendations of myositis, which is in fact the first set that's been written for it. So in episode one, Sarah tells us about the guidelines, what they are, who they're for, and we discuss some of the treatment content. So we encourage you to also come back and listen to part two, where we take a look at the broader approaches to patient management that are in the guidelines through things like the importance of physiotherapy, reducing the risk of fractures, and some other complications that could arise when you have myositis in conjunction with other medical conditions. Hello, Sarah Tansley. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been quite a while since we last spoke together about myositis in that first series that we did back Yeah. Sort of at the start of the pandemic, and we were just sort of saying off um, off audio that uh, so much has changed since then. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It feels like a long time ago now. It does, um, but the the information in those podcast series is still relevant, so we definitely refer people back to have a listen, especially the yeah. overviews. So, can we just have an update, Sarah, as to sort of what you're doing these days? Where do you spend your time? So I'm a consultant rheumatologist at the RNHRD in Bath, and I'm also a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Bath. So my time split 50-50 between um, working in the rheumatology department as a clinician and then doing research. And my research focuses on myositis and myositis autoantibodies in particular. It's really interesting that you've got that kind of like dual function. I think that must make must make your working week very interesting. Yeah, well, they're very different roles, but I do think they complement each other. I think doing the clinical work helps you focus the research onto areas that are the most needed yeah. um, so that it's that it's relevant. And I think, you know, doing the research, you know, I really enjoy it. And it's nice to do something a bit different, really. Yeah, it must um, tie in. I mean, you're working with patients, so you're seeing what they need and then you're taking that back into research. So I was just going to say, I think you can really see the value of research when you work with patients as well. If you were just doing particularly laboratory based research, I think it's really rewarding to see the impact that research findings can have on individual patients. Absolutely. So Let's just have a little quick recap about why we're here today. So I've already sort of mentioned that there's an earlier series to talk about what myositis is. Can we just give that in a nutshell just for anyone new listening? 
Yeah, so myositis is an autoimmune disease. Um, myo means muscle and itis means inflammation. But actually, there are lots of different subtypes of myositis. And patients don't just have muscle inflammation. In fact, some patients don't have any muscle inflammation. It can affect patients' lungs. It affects patients' skin. They can get um, skin rashes. And it's a, you know, it's a chronic long-term condition um, that we manage um, in rheumatology that affects people in lots of different ways. So it's quite complex. I would imagine there's quite a lot of symptoms that individually might not immediately point to myositis. And I think we'll probably come on to that a little bit later, won't we? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the main purpose of today's podcast is really because we had some news to share for Mm -hmm. everyone who's listening with myositis that there were some new guidelines released last year. So So they were published in 2022. Um, They were presented at BSR, I think it was last year. And um, so we were going to just try and run through some of that and to let people know what were in the guidelines, um, how how they were developed as well, I think is always really interesting. So that was that was what we're going to do today, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the really exciting thing about these guidelines is they are the first ever guidelines for the clinical treatment of myositis that follow this kind of rigorous guideline development process, certainly. So they provide a really important benchmark, you know, for how we should be managing patients with this complex disease. Before that, while we could look at, you know, individual trials for perhaps well, there's not that many of them either for for perhaps certain drugs or look at how things were always done. There was no kind of nothing written down that says this is a strategy for how things should be done. Mm, So this is going to sort of streamline everything, isn't it? And hopefully make sure that everybody's getting the kind of the best standard treatment. Yeah across the country instead of just in individual sites. Yeah, and it means that we can all look at how we're treating patients and make sure that we're doing, you know, it's auditable so we can compare what we do to what other, you know, what should be done and then everybody's working off the same standards. So hopefully, regard, you know, regardless of where you are and which hospital you go to, people should be getting the same quality, the same standard of treatment. That's really important as well. And from a patient perspective, you want to know that, if you move, because people do move, they move from mm-hmm. region to region, that, that you'll get a continuation of care, won't you? Because you're still following that framework. Yeah, the same principles. Yeah. So can we begin by talking about how these these kinds of guidelines are developed? What you know, tell us about the process and all that kind of thing. Yeah, so they're guidelines that have been endorsed by the British Society of Rheumatology, and they publish a number of guidelines in rheumatology, as you can imagine. And, um, you know, all BSR guidelines have to follow a very clear process for development to make sure that they're robust. So they have this very clear protocol of what needs to be done. And it's the same with other big organisations like ACR, the American College, or EULA um, for Europe, so that we can be sure that things are done in the right order and everything is done is accurate, essentially, or as accurate as can be that um, that we say. So the first, the, it, it's not 
an, an effort from one individual. So there's a whole team of people who work on, on these guidelines. And the first step is we work out what the guidelines should cover. So what questions are the guidelines going to answer? Because it's impossible for guidelines to cover absolutely everything. So these are treatment guidelines. Um, for myositis, so they don't cover things like how to diagnose somebody with myositis or what tests need to be done for diagnosis or monitoring. It's really focusing on how patients should be treated and managed um, in that respect. So once there's been a list of questions that we're going to answer, then there is a huge literature research search undertaken to look at all of the different studies, everything that's available that might be able to help us answer those questions. And then all of those different papers are reviewed. Usually it's, it's been done by two people um, to pick out which are the relevant papers, which questions they might help answer, um, and also to grade the quality of those papers. So if we're going to use a paper that and results to tell us something, we want to know whether that's high quality evidence or whether that's low quality evidence. And just because something's not a perfect paper doesn't mean it can't include it. But in assessing the quality, we can know that perhaps we need to take that with a pinch of salt or there may be, you know, just some some caveats to the data. So that all of that gets done. And that's the kind of big piece of work, mm. you know, that gets done up front with a guideline. Well, that's the um, evidence, isn't it? That's yeah, exactly. That informs the guidelines. Yeah. And that is then all used to come up with a series of statements. So you use the evidence to kind of come up with statements that answer the questions that were there at the beginning and then the group the expert panel which is a whole range of different people then decide whether they agree with those statements and for a statement to go into the guideline there has to be a high level of agreement so over 80 percent um and if more than 80 percent of people agree and obviously ideally you might have more than that then that statement can go into the into the guideline so this is what's usually called a consensus isn't it it's like a an, an over yes or a yeah. agreement a bit like you would have in a court trial where they have to um you know the the jury has to kind of come up with 11 out exactly of because you know we don't have you know in things are rarely black and white you know we don't have all of the answers so it shouldn't just be one person's opinion dictating what should you know how patients should be managed and in order to reflect really a variety of different people and opinions you have this consensus approach and it's not um people agree or disagree you, as that exercise goes on you know the statements are published people say whether they agree or disagree we look the ones where perhaps there's lower level of agreement you look at well could we tweak that why don't people quite like that statement do we need to add something in or take something out is it the wording and then you can kind of build until you get essentially the, the best that you can and mm. um, statements that people people agree on that's a lot of work how long does that take years <laughs> years <laughs> a long year so the literature research the literature search um for this study was finished in october 2020 i think um so obviously the pandemic and everything but it yeah. you know that's all of that additional time to um to go through the papers and come up with the statements and so on. Gosh, that's a lot of work. And then, so we talked about the, um, you know, the people who have given input as well. So as this process continues, the literature search, I would imagine, is is done a lot by um, expert clinicians and researchers. Yeah. And you bring patients into the picture? 
Yeah, so the the expert panel that do the consensus sort of exercise in for for this guideline included rheumatologists, dermatologists, neurologists, pediatric and adult um clinicians because it's a guideline for adults and children. Mm. Also there was a nurse, pharmacist, um patients, uh, physiotherapists, so a whole range of of different people. Um, all the way through that's yeah. that's good to know it's good to know that patients were involved in that very early part as well yeah and patient involvement is really important because it's no good as clinicians developing a guideline to say this is this is the medicine we think somebody should have if none of the patients want to take it so okay. yeah patient yeah. involvement is really crucial yeah absolutely so we're going to talk about um or try and sort of cover some of the the key updates and recommendations that have been included in these guidelines. I mean, we are going to mainly focus on adults because that's, we know our listening audience are mainly adults. Yeah. There's a lot of information in there that's pediatric specific, but I, I don't think it'd be possible to go through all of that today. So um, where should we start? It, it's, it's, you know, what should we start with, Sarah? Well, I think the key thing about these guidelines really is that they are, as I said before, they're the first guideline. So it sets this really important benchmark. And although we don't have time to cover kind of pediatric specific recommendations, I actually think it's really important that it's a guideline that covers patients right the way through from childhood, adolescence through to adulthood. And it shows, I think it's a really forward thinking way of doing the guidelines because, you know, there isn't this arbitrary cutoff where something magic happens mm. if you're 16 and you're suddenly an adult. And I think, you know, adult clinicians like myself need to be aware about juvenile onset disease and how that's different. And, you know, there's a lot we can learn um, from our paediatric colleagues and and vice versa. So I think it shows a really kind of integrated way of looking at, at treating patients. And then, you know, really the guidelines kind of provide a straightforward approach for how we should be thinking about patients. So I suppose in a nutshell, you know, we use steroids, um, to get on top of disease um, activity quickly. And then we use um, as a first line treatment, what we will often call conventional synthetic DMAD. So that's medications like methotrexate, mycophenolate. And then the guidelines also cover the kind of medications that we might use in patients with more severe or more resistant disease. So that'll be biologic medications like rituximab for for example. So it provides a strategy for, you know, if you've got a patient in front of you, how to, where that patient fits within the kind of currently available knowledge of treatment and how to escalate treatment, I suppose, and where to start. My understanding as well is that there are lots of different subtypes of myositis. So does it address each of those specifically or is it broad? So it doesn't talk about the different subtypes of myositis, but it does talk about the different disease areas. So it talks about how should active muscle disease be be treated. So muscle inflammation, how should active skin disease be treated? How should um, active lung disease be treated? So in that way you can apply that to the different subtypes and obviously patients with dermatomyositis might have skin and muscle inflammation but there's overlap really Mm. you know we don't have a lot of treatment options for myositis so there's obviously overlap between the two groups but it allows you to think about what is the dominant or major area of disease activity um 
that needs to be nurtured. So so the thing that's affecting the patient most at that point in time, and then the treatment can be focused towards whether it's the muscles or the skin, that's that's what we're talking about, isn't it really? Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of overlap between between that. Um, But yes, that's how they've laid it out. That's how they've laid it out, yeah. Okay, so, so the main goals of doing something like this of having these guidelines is to improve the patient's outcomes in terms of their disease symptoms and improving you know enabling them to have the best quality of life that they can so there's going to be a lot in it like you said there's so many things we could touch on can we sort of narrow down into any of those particular things so for instance can we talk about the steroids a little bit more yeah so we use steroids early on because they work really quickly um so all kind of manifestations of myositis really we would tend to use steroids first line sometimes patients can need quite high dose of steroids or intravenous steroids and the guidelines do you suggest circumstances when that might be most appropriate? Um, and it talks about how we should be aiming to reduce steroids. So really, we want patients on the, the smallest dose of steroid that's going to control their disease. But we don't want to reduce steroids too fast and risk a flare. So there's always this mm-hmm. kind of difficult balance. So I'm guessing the guidelines, what they're doing is they're kind of trying to help the clinician with that decision process. Is that yeah, and in some of the circumstances, it may be the the juvenile onset disease, it does talk about steroid dosing in terms of milligrams per kilogram and how that differs between juvenile onset disease and adult onset disease, so that there's a kind of ballpark for how steroids should be dosed. And I think that should help patients not have too much steroid, but also not have not enough because you want to get on top of things really quickly and sometimes that does need a lot of steroid mm. um, unfortunately yeah so I think it's really important that because these are the first guidelines there was no previously agreed treatment approach so in lots of ways we would hope that these guidelines aren't suggesting big changes from current practice because hopefully this is very similar to what people were doing before but it provides this framework for us to reflect on our current practice and to audit how patients are being managed and make sure that what we're doing is using you know is evidence-based and using the available evidence and hopefully the same as as everybody else and sometimes there's not enough evidence so um for example when we're talking about first line DMARDs um, so that's medicines like methotrexate, mycophenolate, there's not enough evidence to choose between them. So the guidelines will state that, you know, first line treatment is a steroid and a DMARD. So we shouldn't be managing patients with steroids alone. You know, we should be adding in a steroid sparing agent to reduce steroid toxicity. And that's really important. But which of those medications you choose could be tailored to the individual patient and this is often a reason why you might pick one over another for a particular patient or it could easily reflect just medicines that that clinician is more familiar with because it's Mm. obviously much safer to be prescribing and monitoring drugs that we know really well Mm. um so 
I mean, I guess DMARDs are things like methotrexate, mycophenolate, azathioprine, cyclosporin and tacrolimus. But we can't say you should use one over the other. It right. really is just one of those type of medications. And the really important part of us doing this podcast, really, to, to help patients understand the guidelines that the clinicians are working under is that they can also then ask questions, can't they? So if yeah. they've been on steroids for a long time and the dose hasn't changed, they could maybe ask about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And often when patients come to clinic, there's a lot to talk about, you know, and it's easy, especially if someone's perhaps on a small dose of steroids and they've been on that for a long time. It, it can be difficult whether you rock the boat or leave things as they are. And patients can have very different opinions on that. So sometimes people really want to be off steroids and they're willing to take that risk. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people have had bad experiences with relapse before or, you know, just life is busy, they're, perhaps they're going on holiday or, you know, what have you, that they just don't want to risk making a change. And mm. I, I guess how I would feel about that as a clinician probably depends a little bit on the steroid dose. If somebody's on a high dose of steroids, I'm more likely to try and push people to reduce it. But if it's a lower dose of steroids, you can be a little bit more flexible to work around life circumstances. Mm, but it's very much should be about this shared decision should absolutely, absolutely guidelines yeah yeah and they are guidelines you know that, that it's yeah. not a one-size-fits-all so yeah. you know part of our job as clinicians is to work with the patient to fit those guidelines to those their circumstances mm -hmm. and you know it's not to say that this is exactly how things have to be done in in every single circumstance and there may be very good reasons to deviate from guidelines um based on an individual patient yeah because not everybody's the same are they yeah yeah it comes back to the discussions that i've had on previous podcasts about medicine everybody wants personalized medicine they want medicine yeah. them as a you know an individual so let's explain about second line treatments so that would be i guess things you would use next so first line treatments is you know, this is what we do first. You'd give your steroid and your DMARD and hopefully everybody's fine. But obviously, sometimes that doesn't work and you have to go to the next level of treatment, which would be your second line treatment. And that might be because somebody's got more severe disease. Perhaps they're getting worse despite what's been done. Or sometimes it's because somebody's got really severe disease from the onset and things are getting worse quite quickly and we want to give something stronger. So there are a number of different treatments that we can use um, in patients who have resistant disease or perhaps more severe disease. Um, and which medication is chosen might depend a bit on whether it's muscle dominant disease or lung disease that's not responding. But mm. these include medicines like um, rituximab, um, which is a biologic drug. It's given as a drip. Um, it includes things like abatacept, IVIG and cyclophosphamide. So these are generally considered much stronger um, medications and we only use them in particular circumstances. Mm. Um, yeah. And I guess, you know, perhaps the other thing to say about this is um, the, the guidelines look at all of the available literature, but obviously literature is being published all of the time mm. so there there have been studies published since the literature search was conducted which do provide more evidence for use of, of some of these 
medications. So um, IVIG is one example, and there was a, a an RCT done in the States um, led by Rohit Agarwal, which has shown effectiveness of IVIG in managing patients with myositis. But we couldn't include that within the guideline because that was too too late. And otherwise, it would just become this endless process that you never you never finish. But it is mentioned in the guideline as a as a kind of additional thing, but it wasn't included in the literature research. So we've got more evidence for IVIG in myositis that can be difficult to access in the UK because there's been um, a national shortage. Right. So we we reserve that for particular circumstances when there aren't alternatives available. Um, and I suppose the other kind of new medication to perhaps mention that isn't mentioned in the guidelines um, would be JAK inhibitors, which are um, a new type of drug. They are used in other rheumatic diseases like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, for example. And we don't have any trial evidence for these drugs in myositis yet, but there has been some really exciting initial data from case series showing mm -hmm. that they can be helpful, particularly in patients with um, nasty skin disease. Nice. So there's... Um, RCTs, randomized clinical trials for um, these JAK inhibitor drugs running in the UK at the moment. So this is a kind of area of interest that hopefully we'll have more information on down the line. Okay, so it's like you said, there's lots of information coming through all the time. So you can't possibly have everything that's current in a guideline that might need to last. How long would you say before it's revised? So I don't know off the top of my head, but BSR, I'm sure, have a policy on guideline updating and, and they are periodically updated every few years because, yeah, they, they get out of date, we get new information. And actually, I think at the moment seems to be quite an exciting time in myositis as there's quite a lot of different trials going on with new drugs that are targeting different pathways. So I would hope that by the time we get a second iteration of this guideline, there'll be a lot more mm. um, that can be included on there. And these are drugs that are probably not going to change how we do things first line. You know, I think first line steroids and the DMARDs, that's fairly well established. But this is about creating options for patients who don't do so well mm. on that first line treatment um, and seem to have more resistant disease. And I think what's interesting from from the patient perspective, again, as well, is that people might now understand why clinicians are choosing certain treatments for them, because that sometimes is a question that comes up is why have I been put on, you know, X, Y or Z? Yeah. And it's these kinds of guidelines that can help inform that. And it's really important for people to understand that those guidelines are written based on lots of evidence, like we talked about the literature. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes people will read about a treatment that's perhaps been on the news. Um, but often at that sort of stage, things are very new. And actually, the level of evidence we've got for that treatment, even if they've been one study, isn't huge because um, it's a quite a particular type of patient that's suitable to be enrolled in a research study. They won't necessarily have had have lots of what we call comorbidities, other things alongside, you know, they won't have lots of damage or anything caused by their disease because the drug company obviously want to demonstrate that their disease can improve things. And patients have to fit very neatly into a box in order to get into a research trial, which, you know, not everybody no. does. 
No. Um, so it's it's good to have this sort of baseline for how we should be doing things. Um, but equally, what we want is these new and innovative treatments so that we have more options mm-hmm. um, for patients who don't respond to our kind of first line conventional treatment. Yeah. We're going to take a little break here, but we would encourage you to come back for episode two, where we're going to talk a bit more about some of the complications that you can have if you've got other medical conditions and look at some of the risks and safety factors, such as how to reduce fractures. So thanks to Sarah for sharing her expertise thus far. We're going to continue the conversation and we look forward to you joining us in episode two. BIRD are committed to helping patients increase knowledge about rheumatic conditions because we know this can have a really positive impact on living with them. We also have a great focus on enabling people to get involved in rheumatology research to help make sure that new medications and treatments meet the needs of patients. We couldn't do any of this without the help of our volunteers and the support of our donors and sponsors, all of whom we are immensely grateful to. You can sign up to be notified about all our podcasts and our patient engagement research opportunities by joining our mailing list. Just send an email to admin at birdbath.org.uk. The address and links are in the show notes.